Hi, I'm an Al-Anon, and I'm from Hewittown, Alabama, and my name is Bo. I just told you who I was, what I am, and where I'm from. That's a mouthful. Four and a half years ago, I didn't know who I was. And I didn't know what I was. I knew where I was from, but I certainly did not know where I was going. And through the grace of God and this program and people like you and some of you people that are out there today, today I know who I am and what I am. And I, know, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I certainly know what direction my life is taking today. And I thank you for that. I want to take just a minute and thank whoever's responsible here for having us here. You know, it's, it's a great honor to be able to share in an anniversary and a birthday, and especially when AA is 33 years old in this state, and that's great to be here. Being an Al-Anon, I don't get to speak a whole lot of times uh, to a mixed open crowd, but I always, when I do, I always like to take just a moment and, and say to you, if you're an AA out there, thank you. Thank you for sharing your program and your way of life with our family. I also want to say something about, uh, before I get started, something about being the first guy up here in this program. <laughs> That's unusual. And I bet a lot of UAAs are sitting out there saying, he's an Al-Anon. <laughs> yeah, I am, but let me set you at ease, folks. One of the ways that I put up with her drinking was that I drank with her. And I drank without her. <laughs> it just so happened that she's the one in our family that has the disease. And since I'm going to talk about her just a little bit, I promise I'm not going to tell you her story, but I am going to talk about her a little bit, and I'll be calling her name. I want you to know who she is. And if my best friend would stand up, I'd like you to see Shirley. You know, I also feel a lot of a lot of nervousness and a lot of fear and trepidation about following Sissy. If you weren't here, you missed something. She's pretty neat. Y'all find out, too, that I choke up and I cry a little bit when I talk, but that's okay. I just ask you to share with me, feel what I'm feeling. You'll also find out that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about how it was. I'll qualify myself, but I'd much rather talk to you about how it is today. We got family recovery going on in the Templin house today. We're proud of it. I used to feel a little bit, I don't know, a little bit of, uh, of nervousness about talking about it. I said, maybe it sounds like I'm bragging, but I don't care if I am bragging. We got family recovery going on at our house today. I'll start back, and, and I'm, I'm going to use something that I borrowed from, a, from a, a Catholic priest friend of mine who's become very dear to us in this program. 
And I could identify with it when I heard him use it, and I said, this is a good place to start, and this is the way he opened up. He said, I was born at a very early age. And I guess that's where I started being prepared for the way of life that I have today. Because I was born into a very religious home. I'm not so sure that it was real spiritual as I look back, but it was very religious. We were Southern Baptists. I was taken to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was fortunate enough, blessed enough to be pretty good in sports, so the RAs wanted me, and I was involved in that. And up until well into my teens, it was just accepted that I go to church Sunday morning, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights. This is important for you to know because this is where my first conception of my God was formulated. I'm sure that somewhere along the line in that Baptist church I was taught that God is a forgiving God, that he's a loving God. But when the disease got as bad as it had to get in our lives, I forgot that. I could only remember that he was a judging God. And it was at that point that I'm sure I began to become very agnostic. I thought that God was sitting up there wherever he sits in his big white throne with a big blackboard in front of him and my name was on it. And when I did something good, I got a check mark. And when I did something not so good, I got a big X. And when the day came for me to go on, we would balance out the checks and the X's and that would determine where I spent eternity. I also thought that when I did something that was not so good and there was an X put up there, that there was punishment that I would have to do because that X was up there. And I'll talk a little more about that later on in my story. There was no drinking in my family, that, in my immediate family, Gosh, on my side of the family, we're full of it. We're full of folks in recovery, too. I'm not sharing names, but I do have their permission to tell you, I've got an aunt and uncle that both are recovering and got 25 years in this fellowship. I've got an uncle that's got a little over three years. Now, I'll talk to you about my brother, too, a little later on. We're full of it. But there was no drinking in my immediate family. There was not any drinking in my life. I was very active in sports, as I said before, and, and drinking just did not go with athletics. At the time I came through high school, when Shirley and I met, she came out of a drinking background and she did not drink. We dated for five years before we married. Neither of us were drinking when we got married. And thank God, we know today that God was watching out for us then. There was no drinking in our life until both our children were born. And Shirley went back to work, got involved in a sorority, a social sorority, and it was at one of these social sororities that old Bo put the first drink in her hand that she ever had. 
I mixed her first alcoholic beverage that she ever had. Now, if you're an Al-Anon and you're sitting in this room, you'll understand what I'm fixing to say. When the disease progressed as far as it had to progress and things got as bad as they got around our home, she was very quick to point out that she wouldn't be as bad as she was if I had not given her that first drink. And you know, the shame of it is, I didn't know I was sick, you see. And I agreed with her. I bought into that load of guilt. And I carried it for several, several years. Several years. And it got very, very heavy. I just knew that if I had not put that drink in her hand, that things would not be like they, they were at that time. And you know, it took me a lot of work when I got in this program to shed that load of guilt. But I had to come to learn something about the disease, and I had to know that I introduced Shirley to drinking. I didn't introduce her to the disease of alcoholism. And that's what made the difference. And it wasn't until I could come to grips with that and set myself free from that load of guilt that I was carrying that I was ever able to do anything about me, what little bit of, little I've been able to accomplish. But prior to us getting into this program, when things were getting so bad around our house, because of this concept that I had of God, my prayers at that time were of the why me variety. Why me, God? What have I done? If you would just reveal to me what I did that was so bad that you're punishing me with this, then I'll go back and I'll try to rectify what I did so that we can get this problem out of our lives and we can go on about living the great American dream. You see, at one time we had the great American dream going on. We had each other. We had two children that were healthy. They were beautiful. They were intelligent. We both had good jobs. We had a little bit of money in the bank. We had a nice house. And we were doing the day-to-day -day things that we thought were necessary to, to function in society. And of course, that got interrupted. But I was praying these prayers, why me, and what have I done, and what can I do? And I wasn't getting any answers. I know today why I wasn't getting answers to those prayers. They're not valid prayers. But that's all I knew how to do because that's all I remembered about my God. I knew that things weren't all that right around the house, but you see, like I told you earlier, I was doing a little drinking too, so I really didn't understand exactly how involved Shirley was getting with alcohol. Sissy told you earlier in her talk that I would call before I left work, and I could tell when I talked to Shirley on the phone if she had been drinking, which I expected it anyhow. And if she had been drinking, the way I coped with it is I would stop off at the bar and I'd have a few with the guys too before I came home. Isn't that sick? Yet I would have told you up front I was not affected. It was her problem. 
the real sick part about it, folks, is that there were two teenagers at that house. And they weren't getting anything. There was no parenting going on at all. Sick environment. Family disease, you bet it is. You bet it is. But I began to have some physical problems in this period. I went to the doctor because I was having some problems with my knees and my ankle. And the doctor looked at me and said, Bo, the reason you're having problems with your knees and your ankles are giving out under that 286 pounds you're carrying around. <laughs> and he said, what we got to do is get some weight off of you. And I said, well, okay, I guess I don't like diets and I don't like losing weight, but I guess we better. And he looked at me and he said, how much beer are you drinking? Being non-alcoholic, I told him the truth. <laughs> And he said, well, I don't see any way for you to lose weight and continue to drink that amount of beer. And I said, well, fine, Doc, you tell me I got to lose weight and I can't drink beer and lose weight, so I'll quit drinking beer, and I did. And I began to lose weight. But the important thing is that it was during this period of me not drinking that I began to really see just how involved my wife had become with her alcohol. And I began to see just how serious our problems really were. Sissy told you a little bit about the, the, the witch hunts that we went on. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Because you see, this is telling you again just how sick I had become. Charlie did around 7.30, 8 or 8.30 each night, very quietly ease into the bedroom and just kind of slide into bed because she had been drinking since 4 o'clock in the afternoon in her kitchen. And that's when her little alarm went off, and that's when she went in there and passed out. And the kids and I would go in to the kitchen, and we would go on our witch hunt, and we would find her bottle. And I would pour the booze out, and then I would throw the bottles away. Well, this aunt that I've got that's got 25 years in this program, she talked to me one day and she said, Bo, we're looking and we're seeing and we know things are deteriorating around your house. How are you handling it? And I told her about what we would do each night. And she just smiled at me so sweetly and she said, I just didn't know you were that well off financially. I had to ask her, what do you mean? And she said, what does Shirley do the next day? And I said, why, well, she stops on the way home from work and buys more. She said, can't you understand that you're pouring dollars down the drain? Why don't you let her drink what she's already got? And I promised my aunt that I would try to do this. But folks, as sick as I had become, I was never able to completely do what my aunt told me to do. I did change in this respect. We still went on our witch hunt. We still found the bottle. I still poured it out. But instead of throwing the bottle away, I started setting the bottle up in the, in the middle of the drain board on the sink. So that when Shirley woke up the next morning and went into her kitchen, she would see that bottle there and she would know that I had found it and know that I had poured it out. Well, it was during family week while she was in treatment that we talked about this situation 
And Shirley looked at me with her jaw dropped open and said, My God, for two years I walked in the kitchen every morning. And I said, My God, Shirley, you drank the whole thing. <laughs> Does that tell you something about the communication in the Templin household at that time? I was not able to talk to her about it. I did not allow the children to talk to her about it. We could talk about what happened because of it. And we could talk about the messed up plans because of it. And we could talk about the things that we had to do without her because of it. But we could not talk about it. And we didn't even realize that that was going on. You see, our communication had gotten to the point that when I talked, Shirley didn't listen. And when she talked, I didn't listen. I can't tell you how many times that I've been sitting in, in my chair reading my newspaper, and she would talk to me for five minutes and then ask me a question, and I would have to ask her, what did you say? What did you say? You know, we were 18 years, 18 and a half years into a marriage, five years dating, and 18 and a half years, we had 23 and a half years involved in our relationship. And I'm not so sure that we ever knew how to communicate. I think we lost communications long before alcohol became a problem. But the alcoholism certainly aggravated it. And that's been one of the byproducts, one of the fringe benefits of our recovery, is that we are now actively learning how to communicate with each other. We're not anywhere near where we want to be with our communication but we're certainly better than we were four and a half years ago. We found out a lot of things about communicating. We found out that you don't have to be talking to communicate. You know, when I'm up here and I'm talking with you and I look out there and I catch one of your eyes and, and I know that you're actively listening to me and that you're helping me share part of Bo with you today, you're communicating with me without even saying a word. And when I get to a point in my story where I'm emotional and I'm stumbling and I can find my wife, she'll sustain me. She'll help me through that without ever saying a word. What about all these hugs around here? You bet that's a form of communication, isn't it? And we're learning all these things and we're putting it together. And it's working for us. We went up to this family week at this recovery center. First, let me tell you about Shirley making, deciding to do something about her drinking. We came in from a ball game one night as we left to go to the ball game that night, the two kids and I. Mike turned around and looked at his mom and he said, Mom, will you be passed out on the couch or in the floor when we get home? And didn't wait for a reply. And when we got home that night, she wasn't passed out. And she told us that she had called a treatment facility and that she had made application to go in. And I was just like, Sissy, I didn't believe her. But I told her so. You see, I got that sharp tongue, too. I told her I didn't believe her. But we found out in the next couple of days as we were busy making the arrangements to get her in that she meant it. And you know what, folks? 
It made me mad. I got a resentment. I didn't know what a resentment was at that time, but like the lady said, it made me mad. Because, you see, I had been trying to fix her for so long. And then she didn't turn to me. Called a complete stranger. And I didn't like that. I wanted her fixed, but I didn't want you to fix her. I wanted to fix her. But she went on in, and they sent me a letter from that treatment center. And they said, Bo, we'd like for you and the kids to come up and spend a week up here with us, move in, learn how to live with your alcoholic. That's what they said in the letter, folks. They lied to me. And I talked to the kids, and I relayed this same message to them, and I said, I think this is what we need to do. I think it would be good for your mom. And I went up there and took both kids with me, fully expecting to spend five days up there and come out with a big list of what I could do, what I couldn't do, and what would be good for her. Of course, it didn't work out that way. You know, I talked to those counselors up there about three days into this week when I figured out what was going on, and I asked them about what they said in the letter. And the counselor looked at me and just smiled, and he said, Bo, if we sent you a letter and said, hey, alcoholism is a family disease, and you've been affected, and you're sick too, come on up here for some therapy, what would you have done? <laughs> and he was right. I would have thrown it away. You see, I would have told him there was nothing wrong with me. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. But during this family week, they call it family week, I called it hell week. Because that's what it was. The toughest week that we've ever spent in our lives. But it was also the turning point in our lives. And thank God he sent Shirley to a treatment center that believed in AA. Because you see, they told me up there that if she was going to have any sobriety, and I didn't know what that was either, I thought that meant she didn't drink. But they said if she's going to have any sobriety, she's going to involve herself with AA. And if you're going to have any sanity, you're going to involve yourself with Eleanor. And it was during this family week up there that I went to my first Eleanor meeting. This sweet lady came out there that night. I don't remember a whole lot about what she said that night, but I do remember a couple of things that were important. The first thing that she told me, and they had been trying to tell me this in family week, and I wasn't ready to listen to it, but it just made sense coming from her. She wasn't a professional. She was just the wife of an alcoholic. And she told me, Bo, there's three C's, and you better remember them. You didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you darn sure can't cure it. And I've never forgotten that. Especially the part about I didn't cause it. Because, you see, for years I thought I had caused it. She also told me that when you get to your Al-Anon meeting and you pick out the group that you're going to go to, you better search out the winners in that group. And she said, when you pick out the winners in that group until you can get your feet on the ground and the fog can clear a little bit, you do everything those winners do. 
And if one of those winners gets up and goes to the coffee pot to get a cup of coffee, then you get up and go get a cup of coffee too. Because there will probably be something said around that coffee pot that you need to hear. Well, I was to the point now where I was asking a lot of questions. I had figured out I wasn't going to be able to do it my way. I was going to have to do it their way. And so I decided I better find out what their way was. And so I asked her, I said, well, how am I going to know the winner when I walk in that room? How am I going to pick them out? And she smiled so sweetly, and she said, you won't have any problem. It'll be the ladies that are sitting in there with a smile on their face. It'll be the ladies that feel good about themselves. It'll be the ones that have got some peace of mind. And sure enough, I found them. They also started talking to me about Shirley had a disease. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't think that it was a disease. How could it be a disease? I had drank too, and I quit. If I quit, why couldn't she quit? It made it that much tougher for me. Think about the problems I had in the first step with powerless over alcohol when I said, I'm not powerless, I can put it down. But that's another story that takes a lot of time. I wouldn't listen to them about the disease concept, and finally one of them up there said, Bo, there's a lot of intangibles that you're going to have to grab hold of. And, of course, he was talking about doing things on faith. And he said, until you can come to grips with this and understand exactly what we mean by the disease concept, why don't you accept it on this premise right now while you're here in Family Week? Blue Cross Blue Shield's paying for you to be here, and they certainly wouldn't pay if it wasn't a disease. And folks, that's how I started out dealing with the fact that alcoholism was a disease. But you know, it wasn't too much longer that I began to get a little more insight into the disease concept of alcoholism. And you know where I got it from? Here again, God was looking out for us, and he led us to that group in Bessemer, and they had a big book study. And they didn't close the meeting. They opened it up to Al-Anons, and they let Al-Anons come to this big book study. And it was right out of the big book of AA and the doctor's opinion that I got a full understanding of exactly what the disease of alcoholism was, is. So if you're an Al-Anon out there and you don't have a big book, I suggest you get one. I'm one of those Al-Anons that feels like it's okay to read and study the big book. One of the first arguments that Shirley and I had after she got out of treatment was we went to a meeting one night and we came home and they said something in that meeting that I didn't understand. And I wanted to search it out in the big book and she was reading it. <laughs> And we had to learn that it's okay to have more than one big book in the house. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you give up your Al-Anon literature and your Al-Anon reading, but I am suggesting to you that you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and study it. There's two chapters in there that belong to us anyhow. The eighth and ninth chapters. You see, 50 years ago when they were putting this thing together, they knew it was a family disease at that time. And they addressed it as such. But I got to Al-Anon. We, we made it through family week. Shirley got out of treatment, and I made it to Al-Anon in Bessemer, Alabama. And I remember the first night I walked into that meeting. And being a newcomer, I did it like all newcomers do, I think. The meeting started at 8 o'clock, and I was there at two minutes till. 
And I walked in and I surveyed that room and I counted heads, folks, and there was 23 of the most beautiful ladies you've ever seen sitting in that room and one other guy. And I said, well, thank goodness I'm not the only guy here. And there was an empty chair beside him and I rushed down there and I got that chair. And of course the meeting was starting. And it was after the meeting that he had a chance to introduce himself to me. And he said, oh, you're bone. You see, that aunt and uncle had put the word out. <laughs> we were on our way. He said, gosh, Bo, I sure am glad you got here tonight. And I said, Kervin, I'm so glad to meet you and know that I'm not going to be the only guy here. And he smiled and he said, I'm moving to Phoenix City in the morning, son. <laughs> he said, this is my last meeting in this group. I'm leaving town. But he talked to me and he shared some with me and he assured me that I was in the right place. And you know, I've seen Kervin several times since then and I've shared this with him. It was good that he moved and left town because as sick as I was, it took all 23 of those gals working real hard with me. And if Kervin had had a problem, he would have been in trouble. I had them all tied up. I got into Al-Anon and I found those winners. And Bethmer's covered up with them. And I began to do the things that they were doing, trying to get my feet on the ground. And I began to make every classic Al-Anon mistake that I've ever heard about. Two of them I want to share with you. Just, just two that we'll talk about. One is I became your classic two-stepper. After family week, after spending that week up there, I was pretty comfortable with the first step about being powerless. I understood how I was powerless over alcohol, and of course I was having no problem with the manage unmanageability of my life. And I was okay in step one. And then I got down there and I read step 12 and it said carry the message. And I was feeling so good about Shirley being sober and things being good around our house. And we were still on that pink cloud. And so I forgot steps 2 through 11, and I took my one day at a time, and I tucked it, and I carried the message. Have you ever tried to carry something you didn't have? God's looking out for me, too. Most of those folks that I went and shared with have made it into this program in spite of me. They really have. The next classic mistake that I made was that I became totally, totally involved in two groups. I'm not saying that this is wrong, folks. I'm saying that it was wrong for me with two months in the program. Because you see, Bessmer was covered up with winners and those, those ladies didn't mind laying the law down to me. They didn't mind straightening me out when I came in there blowing smoke. The other group that I became involved in was a very young group. They hadn't been there but about six months and they didn't have the winners. They've got them today, but it was just a matter of time. They just didn't have them at that time. And here came Bo in, and I was male, and I was loud, and I thought I had it, and they were looking for a leader, and I volunteered. And I almost destroyed that group. And I almost destroyed Bo in the same period of time.
just to show you how things can work. Two years later, that group asked me to come back and speak at their anniversary. Because you see, one night after one of those meetings, when I was so torn up, I got back home and I was sitting there talking to Shirley and I said, I, I can't go on this way. Things are supposed to get better and they're not getting any better. And Shirley was wise enough to point me back to Bethlehem. She didn't try to tell me what to do, but she did tell me where to go again. <laughs> but this time it was constructive. And I did. I went back to Bessemer, and I got away from that second group. And when I got away from that second group, they began to grow and to flourish and to do great things in the community. And I got back, and I seek them, began to seek out the winners again. Somebody's always had to draw me a map, folks. I've never been able to figure out what to do on my own. And I grabbed one of my winners, a gal named Fran D., who's now my sponsor, one of my sponsors. And I sat down and I told her, I said, I'm seeing a lot of growth in Shirley. Shirley's improving, Shirley's, Shirley's getting better, and I'm getting worse. And I, and I don't know what's wrong. And she, she said, Bo, I think it's time you went to work. That you've been skirting around here, pulling the cream off the fellowship just right on the edges of the program, enjoying yourself, and you haven't done any work. It's time for you to go to work. Well, I told her, I said, I'm ready for that. I don't mind working because, you see, I thought working meant that I would immediately begin to come to all these places and speak to you folks that I would be the GSR or the, the group rep, the GR, and that I would go to area assembly and, and represent the group, and I would do all these things that were in front of people. And she said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. It's time for you to go to work on bone. And I said, how do I do that? She said, well, we have a 12-step program that takes care of that for you. And it's time that you started taking those 12 steps and you started trying to apply them in your life on a daily basis. That you begin to do things that are necessary for Bo to find some serenity. And I made a commitment to her and I made a commitment to myself that with her help and the group's help that I would consciously start trying to apply these 12 steps in my life. And I was doing okay till I got down to the fourth step and I was having all kinds of problems, and I went back to my winner again, and I said, why am I having problems with this force? Why can I not get this inventory on paper? And she said, Bo, it's been my experience that if you're having problems with step four, it's probably because you haven't completely worked step. She said, they're numbered one through 12 for a reason. I should have already learned that back when I was a two-stepper, you see. But I still had not learned everything I had to learn. So I went back and I spent some time again on step three. And I had to realize that once again, my Baptist upbringing was creeping its way back to the forefront in my life. Because you see in the Baptist church, the people that I had seen that completely turned it over, I'm not talking about people that were dedicating their lives, I'm talking about people that had completely turned everything over, either became a preacher, a song director, or a missionary. And this was a very real fear with me. 
I knew I couldn't preach. My family told me I couldn't sing, and I wasn't ready to go to Africa. And so I continued to fight. Even though I knew what the problem was, I continued not to deal with it and not to make the decision to turn everything over. I would turn over what I felt comfortable turning over, but I still wanted Bo to run part of Bo's life. And God just continued to work on me. He just continued to make me more and more miserable. One morning I got up to go to work, and at that time I lived about five minutes from work. And I looked at Shirley and I said, I don't want to go to work. I hate it. I've been doing it for 20 years, but I hate it. I'm at the top of my profession, but I hate it. I don't want to go. She said, why don't you stay home? You've got some time coming. Why don't you just call and stay home? I said, no, I don't want to stay home either. I'm not happy there, and I'm not happy here. And I had to realize I wasn't happy wherever Bo was. It wasn't a situation or the place. It was where I was. And I got in my car, and I started to work. And about halfway to work, I just pulled off the side of the road. And this is some six or seven months into the Al-Anon program. And I pulled over on the side of the road out of traffic. And I sat there. And I beat the steering wheel. And I just said, God, I don't know what it is that you're going to do. But whatever it is, get about doing it. I can't fight you anymore. I'm going to turn it over to you. And if we've got to go to Africa, we'll just go. But I can't fight it anymore. And you know, folks, I've heard people talk about hitting their bottom. And I've heard it described as the hitting your bottom is when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was seven months into this program before I hit my bottom. But I hit it on the side of 19th Street in Bessemer, Alabama, about five minutes to eight one morning. And if you've ever had a sponge and you just crushed it up in your hand and it was all out of form and all out of shape, and then you released that sponge and you watched it return to form, that's exactly how I felt that morning as I began to return to form. And I went on to work, and things were better. Things got better. At least I was able to begin to work on me. I began, I was able to get that inventory on paper, and I was able to do the other things that I needed to do. You know, for you AAs that don't realize it, we work the same 12-step program that you work. There's only one word different in our 12 steps, and it's way down in the 12th step, and it's my, it's my contention that if you work the 11 preceding, you'll understand why that word has changed. But the program for daily living is the same. It tells me what my problem is, it tells me what my solution is, and it tells the solution, and then it gives me guided instruction of how to go about doing that. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? All the work was done for me. You see, ever since I've got here, people have had to draw me maps. They've had to give me directions because I refused to follow the directions that were already there, already printed for me. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two will continue in just a moment. Opening in, in our best morale on group, we use an old opening that's got a, a statement in it that, uh, that's been taken out of the new Al-Anon literature, but this statement is very dear to me. 
and I want to share it with you. And the statement is, rarely do we see a family that is not greatly benefited when both husband and wife work the AA program. Working in unity for a common purpose more than strengthens both partners individually. It draws them closer together. And that's what God has allowed to happen in our lives. Shirley works her program and Bo works his program, but God has allowed us to mesh these two programs together and to do things together and to recover together. We got sick together. We're recovering together. You know, Shirley and I never divorced, but we certainly lived two separate lives under the same roof for several years. There was times in our life that I didn't like Shirley, but that was okay. She didn't like me either. <laughs> I never stopped loving her. I know that today but I certainly didn't like her, and I didn't like what she was becoming. It was as if God had taken our love, and he had put it on the back burner of a gas stove, and there was nothing on but the pilot light. Our love wasn't dying, but it wasn't growing. It was just sitting there simmering. And through the grace of God, and through getting involved in AA and Al-Anon and Alateen with our children, and through the love and the support of people like you. God has seen fit to move our love back to the front burner of that stove and it's turned up on high today. You see, I'm married to my best friend and that's a neat feeling. And four and a half years ago, I didn't even like her. But it was just preparing us to get to you so that we could begin to get well. I'm not so sure that my simple mind is capable of comprehending just how great recovery can be. I really don't think I'm capable of comprehending that. I began to work the steps. I began to see some growth in me. I sat in Al-Anon meetings and I heard them talk about detachment tough part of the program, isn't it, folks? But I read up on it. I could talk about it. I could tell you how to do it. I could tell you what was involved, and I would agree that it was the hardest part of the program because, you see, my wife was out there in the other room, and she was sober. I was never going to have to practice this detachment, so I felt very comfortable with it. And then along came my brother. Drinking very alcoholically. And I promptly forgot everything that I had ever read, heard, or said about detachment. And I almost enabled him to keep on drinking when he was doing everything that he could to try to stop. And I almost enabled him to keep on. And I walked into the Bessemer AA group one night, and one of my AA winners husband of my sponsor, a guy named Jim D, for some of you that know him. He grabbed me up by the collar as I walked in the door, and he yanked me over in the corner. And he said, don't you love your brother? See, David was flopping in and out, doing everything he could do. I said, yeah, I love him. I love him with every fiber in my body. He said, then why are you killing him? 
and I had to ask him, what do you mean? And he explained it to me, and he showed me how I was enabling my brother to continue to drink. And once again, I had to ask, what do I do? Draw me a map. And he was ready for me. He drew me a map. He said, I can't tell you what to do, but this is what I would do. And he told me what I had to do, and it wasn't very easy, and it concerned going to my brother's employer, who was a dear friend of mine, and telling my, my brother's employer that it was not okay for David to drink on the job. Because, see, I had told him, well, he's got a disease, and maybe you need to go easy on him. And I went back. I got up the next morning, and I said, you know, I don't have the guts to go do this. This is going to cost my brother his job. And I know it. And on the way to work, I asked God to help me do this. And God and I went up there and we talked to David's employer. And this was on a Wednesday morning that I talked to this employer. And we made up a new game plan. And Thursday night, my brother was at our house asking for help. Friday morning, I had the honor of taking him to Brookwood. And this past July, three years sobriety. Isn't that neat? One of God's miracles. You know, I, I use step 11 in my life daily. I take my time for meditation and prayer, and I ask God, to show me what he would have me do and to give me the opportunity to help someone. And step 11 is very, very important to me, folks, because, you see, it taught me how to pray. It taught me that I couldn't pray those why me's and those what ifs and those what have I done's anymore. And when I began to pray valid prayers, it brought on a new problem. Now I had to learn how to recognize answers. Because you see, I hadn't been getting any answers for years and years. And when I began to pray valid prayers, I began to get answers. And I had to learn how to recognize these answers. And I have problems with that. A story I like to tell about that is about, that illustrates that real well, is about the old Cajun down in the bayou country. And I found out why they call them bayous. They say it's because it runs by you house. And he's sitting in his rocking chair on the front porch, and it begins to rain. And as the rains continue to come down, the waters begin to rise, and it begins to be a flood. The water gets outside the bayou. And the people came by in the rowboat, and they said, Come on, you know, it's raining, and it's going to flood. Come on, we'll get you out of your house. And he says, No, I've prayed about it. I've talked to God. I'm going to stay with my house. And it continued to rain, and the floodwaters continued to rise. And the next time the boat came by, he was on the second story, up on the second floor, looking out the window. And I said, buddy, you better get in the boat. It's not going to quit raining. And he says, no, no, I've prayed about it, and I've talked to God, and I'm going to stay with my house. And the next time they saw him, he was on the, on the roof holding on to the chimney when the helicopter came over and hollered down to him and said, get on this rope ladder. Get out of here. And he says, oh, no, no. 
I've prayed about this. I've talked to God about it. Staying with my house. And the floodwaters continued to rise, and he drowned. And when he got to heaven, he looked at God, and he said, What went wrong? I prayed about it. I talked to you about it. I told you I wanted to stay with my house, and I drowned. What happened? And God looked at him and said, I sent you two rowboats and a helicopter. What else could I do? So you see, God sent him three answers. None of them were the answer he wanted. He wanted the floodwaters to recede where he could stay with his house. All three of them were the answers that he needed. And I have problems with that today. Because usually the answer that uh, the answer I get most often from my God today is, Bo, wait. Use patience. Because I too get in a hurry. I want what I wanted yesterday. And I have a lot of, lot of problems with my patience and my tolerance, but it's getting better. It's getting better. But I know today that through these 12 steps, what I've had to learn to do was fire Bo as a general manager of Bo's life. And the day that I fired me, and that happened about five minutes to late that morning on the side of 19th Street in Bessemer, Alabama, when I fired me as general manager of my life, I looked around, and the best general manager that I could find at that time was God. And I hired God to be the general manager of my life. And as long as I can keep both fired and God hired, things go good. Things go good. But I have to work on it continuously, you see, because I have a tendency to reach back and take hold and take control. I want to share with you some things that Al-Anon has given to me. One of the first things that Al-Anon gave me was freedom. Freedom from that load of guilt that I caused it. But it also gave me freedom from despair, freedom from fear, freedom from self-pity, freedom from resentment and self-resentment. I'm not telling you that these things don't creep back into my life. They do. But it's my choice today how long they stay. It's given me the freedom to handle those things and get them back out of my life. Al-Anon's given me hope. Hope of a better life. I think that's the message anyhow, isn't it? That light at the end of the tunnel. It's given me a new way of life. And that new direction in my life is being revealed to me through 12 simple steps that I insist on complicating by putting me in charge of. As long as I can keep me out of charge, those steps work. Al-Anon's given me back my family because when we got here, we didn't have a family life. Like Sissy said earlier, we were out there on 28th Avenue in Hueytown. We were living in a house and a house is built by hand. We still live in the same place today, but we live in a home. And that home is built with love and compassion and care for one another. Alanine gave me 
back to me. But when he gave me back to me, it made me responsible to me for me. And I'm okay with that responsibility today. I can handle that responsibility today. I could not handle it when I got here. Alanon gave me a new concept of God. And I got this concept right out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the chapter to the agnostics. And I want to share that with you. I want you to know this morning what my conception of God is. It tells in there somewhere around page 56 in that area about a young man who is undergoing some, some sort of spiritual experience. And he said he, he found that the barriers that he had built were swept away. Now he's talking about the barriers that he had built between himself and God. Not the barriers God had built, but the barriers he had built were swept away. And he found himself in the presence of infinite power and love. And he stood in conscious companionship with his creator. And he said he had stepped from the bridge to the shore. And what he means, he had stepped from the bridge of reason to the shore of faith. But he found himself standing in the presence of infinite power and love. That's my conception of God today. Infinite, never-ending power and love that's available to me to tap anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that I need it. And this program gave that to me. You know, we have a saying in the program that I firmly agree with. But it has a lot to do with what's up on this wall behind me, responsibility. And the saying is, you can't keep it unless you give it away. And I firmly believe that, totally believe it. But folks, there's a part two to that. There's a page two, as Paul Harvey would say. You can't give away what you hadn't got. And part three is, you couldn't have had it unless there was somebody here to give it to you when you got here. I think we all have a responsibility. If we've been here a while, sometimes we don't realize just, to, just how great our responsibility is to the newcomer that comes in the door. We have a responsibility to give it away. And if we're going to give it away, we better have been going to some meetings and we better have been reading some literature and studying our program so that we will have something to give away. I'm so glad that Bessemer was full of winners when I got there to share with me. A couple of more things I want to share with you. This one has been on my mind just of late. I got into a situation or a thought train where I was concerned about just exactly what is serenity because I thought serenity was what I was looking for. I thought serenity was my destination. And I had to realize that serenity is not my destination. I couldn't stand to be totally serene. If I was serene all the time, I would become very complacent and I would quit growing. But I had to learn that recovery is our journey. Serenity is the rest stops along the way for me.
that when I've gone as far as I can go, and God has to pick it up and take me on, he'll give me a patch of serenity to sustain me, to rest me. And I want you to know that this weekend has been a patch of serenity for me. This has been a rest stop along the way. And I'm so glad that you were here to be a part of it. One more thing I want to share with you, and it, it concerns my dad. I've not had a real good relationship with my dad for the past 12, 14 years. And he's in the hospital in a coma. Operated on about five weeks ago, and he's not going to come out of it. The doctors have told us that he's going to die and probably never regain consciousness. And I'm having some trouble dealing with that because I haven't had this relationship that I should have had with him. And I always listen to you people when you tell me something. About three weeks ago, Shirley and I spoke at a birthday party down around Montgomery, an anniversary. And one of the ladies, one of the winners, came up to me and she said three words. She said, don't be selfish. And as I went back home and I got to thinking about that, I said, this is what's going on with me. I am being selfish. I'm trying to take control. I'm not ready for my daddy to die. And I'm trying to take it over again. And then I heard something said up here by one of the speakers yesterday. She made a statement, I don't understand death. And that made sense to me. I don't understand death either. And I don't understand what God's trying to do by taking this man away from me when I so desperately want to work on this relationship some more. The only thing that I have to hang on to right now is that three days before he was operated on, the last time I saw him in a sane, rational condition, I was able to stand by his bed and hold his hand. And I told him I loved him. He told me he loved me. And I couldn't even have gone up there to see him if I hadn't had the support of this program and these people around me and the love of my God to sustain me. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with Daddy. I know probably that when it does happen, I'm not going to understand it, and I'm not going to agree with it. But I know this. I'm going to have some folks that's going to be real close to me to get me through that time. I just want you to reflect for a minute. Think about the love you feel in this room right now. Think about the compassion and the care that you feel for one another. And I was told when I came here that this program was full of it, and I firmly believe that. And I was told that if I stay close to you, I would never have to be alone again. And for that I'm grateful. 
Thank you so much for being here and allowing me to share with you this morning. I love every one of you. Thank you.